Hey there, Pastor Mark here. It's our prayer that this message would encourage and equip you in your relationship with Jesus. We're able to provide this content due to the joyful generosity of our financial partners. And if you'd be willing to join that tribe and help get some sermons like this around the world, you can donate at harvestbaptist.info slash give. God bless. Well, let's go to Revelation chapter number 13. Revelation 13. If I could, I'd like to review very quickly. We've been in Revelation for a number of months and I wanna get the, the top-down view of what we've covered so far. So Revelation is kind of in three parts. The first five chapters and the, and the back five chapters serve as bookends and they're very different than the middle 12. The middle 12 chapters are about this time of tribulation or great tribulation where God's judgments are being poured out on the earth. And the judgments come in almost three sections or three waves. There's what's known as the seal judgments. We've already covered those. Then there's the trumpet judgments. Then there's the vile judgments. The seal judgments are largely the evil seeds from mankind that are already sown into the world. And those just become unrestrained and they begin to blossom. The trumpet judgments are largely satanic, satanic forces having less restraint and the devil like working overtime to affect the world and to persecute. Then eventually we'll get to the vile judgments, which is God kind of making everything right. But I say that because we're at the end of the trumpet judgments that are largely centered on satanic forces being allowed to do what they want to do. And we saw in chapter number 12 that Satan begins to really focus extra on the world. And chapter 13 tells us some of how he does this. And it tells us that there's two agents that he will deploy to affect the world. We covered the first one already in the first 10 verses of chapter number 13, who is known as beast number one. The whole chapter is about beast one and beast two, not to be confused with thing one and thing two from Dr. Seuss, beast one and beast two. And beast number one, we learned his daddy is the devil. He operates in political power and he had a five-fold purpose that I just wanna machine gun to you real quick by way of review. He was coming to uh, deify Satan and to lift up Satan. He was coming to defy the savior. He is known as the anti-Christ or anti-Jesus. He's against Jesus. He was coming to destroy the saints. He makes war with the saints and he begins to persecute them. He's coming to dominate society. He wants more and more people on his team. And then lastly, he wanted to deceive sinners and be very uh, sneaky and very deceptive. And we're gonna pick it up in verse number 11 where we are introduced to uh, beast number two. This is the second evil helper. And this evil helper is the right-hand man for the Antichrist is what we'll see. So what Alexander Hamilton was to George Washington, what Batman was to Robin, what peanut butter is to jelly, that's what the beast number two is to beast number one, right? And if you're thinking, what do you mean what peanut butter is to jelly? Peanut butter is the star and jelly is like the sideshow. You're wrong. Anyone with culinary taste will tell you jelly is the staple and peanut butter is on the side. Can I get an amen? amen. Thank you. Thank you. That's, it's in the Bible somewhere. You'll find it. It's in there somewhere. So verse number 11, here's what we learn about beast number two. We learn that he's a servant of Satan. So look at it. 
I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb and he spake as a dragon. So he appears as a lamb, but he speaks as a dragon. And we don't have to really uh, interpret that or what's the symbol mean? Because we learn in chapter 12, the text literally said, the dragon is Satan, right? We don't have to guess what that means. What it's telling you is that he will look soft or appear to be winsome or cute or cuddly or easy, but he actually will speak as the devil. He will be Satan's mouthpiece is what it's saying. It tells you in verse number 12 that what he'll do is he'll be a worker of worship. Verse 12, he exercises all the power of the first beast before him. So they're in cahoots, beast one and beast two. And he causes the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. We saw that previously, that there's this parody of a resurrection that happens with the Antichrist, some sort of wound that he comes back from and the world begins to marvel at him. And what it tells you is that the Antichrist no longer wants to be admired as a great man. He wants to be worshiped as God and a great function of this second beast is to cause other people to worship the Antichrist. And this begins to tell you that there is this poor man's trinity happening. There is an unholy trinity here, right? In the trinity, you have the father, you have the son who comes and, and raises from the dead and is worthy of worship. And then you have the Holy Spirit. According to John chapter number 16, the Holy Spirit has a pretty long job description, but one of his main bullet points on his job description is to cause people to worship and to glorify the son. And almost in the same sort of knockoff way, you have Satan who's the daddy, you have his, his son, the Antichrist, who has this false resurrection, then you have this, this other agent who wants to cause people to worship the Antichrist in his fake resurrection. And Satan is, is knocking off the Trinity, and the point that you get here is that there is a religious connotation. You'll even find this. John 16, uh, excuse me, Revelation 16, twice, Revelation 19, once, and in Revelation 20, once. This second beast is called the false prophet. And that's generally the names that these two go by. They don't normally go by beast one, beast two. They normally go by the antichrist and the false prophet. And even the idea of prophet has a religious connotation. And this tells you plainly that his goal, the first beast will have political power at his disposal. The second will have religious power at his disposal. And these two will come together in order to lead people away from the living God. And that shouldn't surprise us because throughout the course of human history, we have seen this over and over and over again, that people don't just want political leaders, they also want religious leaders, and they oftentimes want to marry the political and the religious so that they go together. And we have seen this be insidious throughout the history of mankind where the, the political system and the religious system become so intertwined with each other that it becomes very problematic. And this will happen. This is the protocol. These are the marching orders for these two to come together. And it'll be a worker of worship. But it tells you in verse number 13 that he's also a master of miracles. Verse 13, he does great wonders so that he makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. So there's this Elijah sort of Sodom Gomorrah, you know, God calling down fire sort of thing happening. 
He deceives, verse 14, them that dwell on the earth by means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast. Now, let me stop for a minute. This is, if you read 2 Thessalonians, this is exactly what Paul said would happen with the Antichrist. But he said the Antichrist will come and his work will be in accordance with that of Satan and he will deceive people with many miracles. And this is that description. There is satanic sign language, these signs and wonders that are coming. Middle of verse 14, he says to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast, which had the wound by a sword and did live. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. Now, I don't know exactly how that's gonna happen. I don't know if that's black magic. I don't know if that's a statue that they're making, right? There's a building project. We're gonna make a statue. We're gonna worship this thing that is meant to, to cause us to worship the Antichrist. And this, it says, will come alive. Is that robotics, right? Do they take some of the robotics industry from Pittsburgh and put it to use in this statue that's ro robotic? Is AI at play here? An artificial intelligence that now this this thing that is not human begins to speak and think and make decisions and to say that you should kill these people? I don't know. I could speculate all day long. But I will say this much, in the first century, you probably would have been like, how's that gonna work, right? We fast forward a little more, we're like, oh, I could kind of see that happening. That doesn't seem too far-fetched to me now, right? But what is the point of all this? The point is using miracles to distract and to mesmerize and to cause people to give their allegiance to the false prophet, to the antichrist and in turn to the devil and to, and to detract from the glory and the goodness of God. And when I read this a couple of weeks ago, started studying more and trying to really dig into it, my mind immediately went to uh, the jungle book. And I don't know why my brain does this. Maybe I should grow up or something, I don't know. But I immediately thought of the jungle book and remember Kaw, the snake, who mesmerizes and charms Mowgli? And he, he looks in his eyes and the eyes begin to twirl and he begins to sing to him, trust in me, just in me. And, and Mowgli begins to be mesmerized and hypnotized by him, right? The idea here is that there will be this agent who will want to mesmerize and want to say, trust in me, just in me, and get people to give their allegiance and to just follow like a zombie and to follow after them with these miracles. You say, what do you mean miracles? Like legit miracles? Yeah, legit miracles. Like there's the natural realm and there's the supernatural realm. And certainly God, the spiritual realm is not the natural realm but there are also evil forces that are not the natural realm, but are the spiritual or the supernatural realm, right? And you have to know that just because something appears to be miraculous or even flat out is miraculous, doesn't mean that you run to it. You gotta be aware of that. Ouija boards can get not natural and start to go into paranormal, spiritual, supernatural stuff, but stay away from them because they are not helpful or holy. And this is saying there will be this supernatural, there will be this miraculous that people will be tempted to be mesmerized by. And it's saying it will happen in large part. And while this is future oriented, you need to know those things still happen today. I watched a brief documentary recently of a Bible that is somewhere in Kentucky that apparently has poured 
oil out of it continuously for years. The Bible's in the case, and oil just keeps coming out of it and coming out of it. And they've gallons of oil that they keep taking out. Not like motor oil. I don't know if it's vegetable oil or olive oil or essential oils. I don't know what it is. Maybe that's where essential oils get their powers from. It's from the Bible, but I I shouldn't say that. Cut that out of the online portion, please. I don't need too many of you mad at me. Um, But these people are mesmerized by this Bible. I don't know what's at play there, and I'm not putting my faith in whatever you say because your Bible leaks oil. Sorry, I need more than that. I'm not saying it's not miraculous. I don't know, I haven't been there, I haven't touched the Bible, I haven't tasted the oil, haven't rubbed it on my wrist, I haven't done any of that. I don't know if it's miraculous or not. I know this much though, a miracle does not mean I believe in whatever you're selling. I know that much, right? And there is a temptation for people to be mesmerized by false teachers, false prophets, even things that are supernatural and are spiritual, and you do not bank on something because it appears to be miraculous. And what's amazing to me is if you read the New Testament from cover to cover, you will find that over and over and over again, like more than you might initially think, you are warned against not being sucked in by false teachers and false prophets. And I want to help you a little bit today. I just want to step to the side and give you ways that you can identify false prophets. I think over the last six or seven years, I may have told you this once or twice before, but you need to be able to test people and their messages so that you can know, is this authentic or not? And the good news is the Bible tells you how. How do you avoid being mesmerized by miracles that are meant to lead you astray? First of all, you look at their methods. Second Peter is probably the best text on this. And he says, I want you to be aware that there's false prophets among the people, even as there shall be false prophets among you. It's coming to you. And a market to you soon, there will be false prophets who will what? Who will privily bring in damnable heresies. Privily, privately, secretly, sneakily. I don't think sneakily is a word, but sneakily. They will bring this in. They will creep. That's what Jude says. Jude says false teachers will creep in. They will come through the back door, not through the front door. They will slither in the basement. They will not ring your doorbell. That's how false teachers work. Very subtle, very sneaky. This is how it works even inside of churches. I've been a part of of quite a few churches. I've seen every church has this to some measure and it's the pastor's job, all of their job to try to eradicate it as much as they can. But people tend to operate with a, don't tell them I told you. But I I don't know. I, I, I think there may be more to it. Just between me and you, you know, just between me and you. Hey, there's, we're having a Bible study at our house. There's only like five of us that know about it right now. Keep it on the down low. We'll let more people know. You're not going to hear it in the announcements or anything, but we're, we're, we're really getting into some, some, some deep stuff. You know, you should come with us and eventually we'll, we'll make the word known to everybody else. That sort of stuff, right? That is creeping and secret and covert, not overt. That is wanting to, to operate in the shadows, Look at their methods. If they're operating in the shadows, that's not good. Beware. Beware. I've even had this over the years. I don't get it much anymore. My first couple years, I I got this a few different times where I would get letters from people that were either A, anonymous, or B, 
from a group of concerned church members, right? And I don't know, maybe you wrote the note. You could still be sitting here. I have no idea. You know, is that group, me, myself, and I? Is it me and my husband? Is it 40 of us? Who knows, right? It's always a group. And I have, I have a special filing cabinet for all of the anonymous slash group of concerned uh, church members letters that I've gotten over the years. It's called the trash can. I've put it right in there. Half the time I don't even read them because I have no interest. I have no interest in have, trying to somehow learn or have a conversation with someone I can't have a conversation with because they want to hide in the shadows and, and not actually talk. That, that's not healthy. It's not helpful. That's, those, that, those are the methodologies by which people try to sneakily, not a word I know, lead people astray. You also want to examine their message. What's it say? They will privately bring in what? Damnable heresies. They'll deny the Lord that bought them. What's it saying? Look at their message. Look at their teaching. Look at their songs they sing. Does it pass the Christology sniff test? Do they deny that Jesus is God? Do they deny the incarnation? Do they deny his vicarious death? Do they deny his resurrection? Do they, do they very quickly say, we wanna worship Jesus? If they don't, run. Look at their morals. It goes on to say, many shall follow them and they won't just follow their ways. They will follow, verse number two, they'll follow their what? pernicious ways. What's pernicious mean? Wicked, evil, by reason of whom, now listen, this is, this is so telling, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. What is the net result of their message? The net result is that good becomes bad and bad becomes good. Jude said the same thing. He said that false teachers will turn the grace of God into lasciviousness. You say, lasciviousness, that's not a word that I use this week in my vocabulary. That means immorality. They will take the grace of God and they will turn it into immoral teaching. They will take good and they will make it wrong. So to be more concrete, well, you know, this is in churches all the time. God's love, he accepts us. Shouldn't we be accepting? I mean, man, who are we to judge? How could we put a sexual ethic out there in the world and hold people to it? Who are, who are we to say, isn't God love and doesn't he accept them? Then, then the church should just accept everybody. And the thing is, there's a measure of truth to that. But that measure of truth grows into, so man, if, if someone is, is gay or bisexual or lesbian or transgender, then you know who are we to say that, that that's a big deal? How could we ever say that's unfitting or unholy or unhealthy or unhelpful? How could we ever say that? And all of a sudden, right becomes wrong and wrong becomes right. And they're using Christian lingo to accomplish this, right? All the time people are deceived by this and, and they, they take the message and they twist it. I hear this often, not just from people in the culture, but from people in our church. Wouldn't God want me to be happy? As if the chief end of God is my happiness. Wouldn't God want me to be happy? You know, I'm happier when I'm drunk. I'm a happy drunk. So I think that I should just tip a few back, you know, because he wants my happiness. 
I know this is a no-fault divorce and, and you know, it's just because we don't like each other anymore, but let's go ahead with it. And all of a sudden, happiness becomes the center and the doctrine that we're all pursuing. And now truth and good is evil spoken of. What, what is he saying? I could give you a million examples, but I'll leave it there. He's saying, look at them, look at their methods, look at, look at what they do, look at their doctrine, look at how they go about things. But he also says, look at their ministry. Many shall follow. Don't just look at the teacher, look at the people who follow them. Because this is a truth, and I, I hesitate to say it because it convicts me sometimes. Like pastor, like people. Not 100%, but there's a rule of thumb there that's true. Like prophet, like people. People tend to follow and to pick up on what they're saying. And if you have, if you have someone who's teaching and 95% of their followers begin to say, well, they told me that the Bible wasn't the word of God. But the teacher says, no, I never said that. Well, 95% of your followers got that message. I think you may have said it. Maybe, right? Isn't this what Jesus said? Jesus said in Matthew chapter number seven, so simple. He said, beware of false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Ye shall know them by their fruit. Look at the fruit of their ministry. Look at the people who follow their teaching. What does it look like? And if it's scary, keep away from it. Now, people can duct tape plastic fruit to a dead tree for a little bit. All right? But eventually, people start to taste the fruit and it chips their teeth. And they begin to realize, oh, that tree doesn't look very healthy. I think it's dying. It doesn't take very long to figure out their fruit isn't good, right? Lastly, look at their motivations. Second Peter 3, last verse. They will, these false teachers, through covetousness with feigned or fake words, they will make merchandise of you. False prophets, as a rule of thumb, are slick. And there's almost always, not always, but almost always a financial angle where what they're saying is to line their own pockets and to make them wealthier. That's a problem. I'll pray for you and I'll give you my best prayer for X amount of dollars. How about you pray for me for free? Like I missed the pray for money part. Like where was that verse, right? Look, I'm telling you right now, if I start to sell you indulgences, please fire me that day. If I say, thank you, Jamie. <laughs> she has all the voting power. We vest it right now in Jamie. Do I have a motion? What's happening there? You're taking spirituality and you're monetizing it. That's not cool. That's not right. Hey, I got, I got some oil here, uh, not from the Bible, because that's special. I got some oil from Walmart, some, some vegetable oil. Cost me $3, but I'm gonna pray over it. I'm gonna make it holy oil. And if you, if you tune into my program, and if you order from me for only $30, this now is holy oil, because I have laid my hands on it, and you can sprinkle your house, and the demons will go away. That stuff exists, where somebody just made tenfold their money on you because you thought their oil was holy. What is that? That is a false prophet trying to make merchandise of you. When there's a financial angle attached to it, run. So here's, here's the bottom line. Having a soft heart is not an excuse for having a soft head, okay? And as your pastor, I want you to have a soft heart. I want you to give people the benefit of the doubt. 
I want you to have a trusting, gracious, forgiving spirit, but that can be taken too far. And now you're too trusting and too gracious and too much benefit of the doubt when they have proved to you on multiple occasions through multiple of these tests that they're not authentic and their message isn't real and you don't need to have a soft head at that point. You need to run. You need to get away. And what is, the, what is Revelation 13 saying? It's saying this will be the name of the game. There's an antichrist and there's a false prophet who will cause people to worship said antichrist by deceiving them with miracles and with spirituality. That's what'll happen. But then it goes on to say that he's a controller of commerce. Verse 16, these are the verses that everyone wants to talk about. You may not have known it, but when I read them, you'll be like, oh yeah. Tell me what you think about that, pastor. Verse 16, he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond. Doesn't matter if they have political status or power. Doesn't matter if they have socioeconomic status. Doesn't matter who they are or where they're from. He causes them to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads. Why? I have to get a mark. What do you mean mark? And people want to speculate all day. It's a tattoo and that's why tattoos are evil. It's a brand. It's a microchip. It's, a, it's in the vaccine and it swam from your arm down to your, your wrist or something. It's what, people want to speculate all day which is pretty pointless. Some sort of mark, it tells you the location, but it tells you why. That's what it's really after, why? That no man might buy or sell, accept or save that he had the mark. Or not just the mark, you also could have the name of the beast or the number of his name. And we'll get to the number in a minute. But they're there and you need to have the mark or you need to have the name or the number. Why? To participate in the marketplace. You don't get to buy, you don't get to sell, you don't get to barter, you don't get to trade, you don't get to do anything unless you participate with this. What is it? It is a take the mark or starve. Remember, seal judgments, trumpet judgments, towards the end of trumpet judgments, things are pretty hairy in the world at this point. Economically, things are not thriving. And in order for you to get the essentials, in order for you to have a job, to have income, you must comply. Now, there's a million ways that people try to look and say, well, look at this. That's setting the stage for this and we should, we should oppose it. You know, social security numbers back in the day. You have to have a social security number in order for us to run your credit, know who you are and give you a loan. And when that first came out, people were up in arms, social security numbers, you know, those are the devil. They're gonna use it for, for this chapter. You, there's a million ways that you see this. World War II, they rationed food. We've seen this certainly with, uh, with COVID and the pandemic whether it's a vaccine card in order to travel or restaurants saying you must be vaccinated in order to get in. But lots of people point and say, this feels kind of similar. This feels like we're setting the table so that this can be ushered in. And that's probably true. It doesn't mean that you necessarily have to fight tooth and nail against all of those things. But it's saying this will happen. How exactly that will happen and come to bear, I don't know all the details. But we know this much comply and take the mark or the name of the number or you don't get to eat, basically. Now it goes on to tell you the number, verse 18. Here's wisdom. Let him that has understanding count the number of the beast for it's the number of a man. And his number is 600, three score, 
and six, 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 six. The most infamous trio of numbers in the history of the world, right? Gothic people put it on their clothes. Satanists tattoo it on their knuckles. Preachers put it in the title of their sermons to get more views. Like ever, you know, it's there. What, what does that mean? Well, it tells you this much. It's the number of a man. It's a number that becomes basically equivalent with the false prophet Antichrist. It's, they become one and the same. Maybe a, the best illustration I could give you would be the number 23. I don't know that all of you would think of the same person if I mentioned the number 23, but probably the majority of you would think of Michael Jordan. You would say 23 is MJ. That's like his number, right? How exactly this number becomes associated with him, and I don't know all the details. I'm not gonna go down the rabbit hole all day on it. I have a little bit of speculation, but I'm gonna spare you my speculation. I'll speculate about peanut butter and jelly, but I won't speculate about the numbers. It says that this is the number that is associated with this person and you can have the mark or you could just declare that number or declare the name. Who is the person? What is the name? What, give me the top 10 list of the names that you think it could be. No, that'd be pointless. Okay, I, I don't wanna go down that rabbit hole. I wanna, I wanna get the main picture, the main point of the text. What's the main point of the text? The main point is that Satan's gonna have agents and he's gonna work through people, specifically. Through two satanically inspired and motivated individuals known as the Antichrist and the false prophet who will rise up and functionally take over the world. And rather than pointing people to worship the true and living God, they will point people to worship themselves. That's Revelation 13 in a nutshell. The point is that these two will be about self-worship and self-glorification, and they will seek to loot and plunder the planet of the glory that naturally goes to God via his creation and via his people. And they will want to plunder that glory for themselves and put God not just on the sideline, but out of the building and say, worship us, look at us, this is all about us. That's what will happen. And now there's a, there's a lesson, even though it's future, there's a lesson there for today. Because the idea of putting ourselves at the center and moving God to the periphery or out of the equation altogether is an idea that is growing in popularity more and more and more. The idea in modern psychology now, most of the time, is that the way that you figure out who you are and where you're from and what your purpose is and what life is all about, the way you figure that out is you put yourself at the center and you move God out of the equation altogether. Most people in our culture now believe the lie that self is the solution and others are the problem. Instead of the biblical truth that self is the problem and God is the solution. You see how like opposite that is? Before we get worked up about vaccine cards, setting the table for Mark of the Beast stuff, we should maybe get a little worked up about the narratives that our young people are believing and are being taught wholesale from the culture. That you belong at the center, you are the solution and your problems are elsewhere. So now there are a bunch of people that say, 
I don't know exactly what the problem is. Maybe the problem is my parents or maybe the problem is my siblings. Maybe the problem are my political leaders. I'll point the finger everywhere I want, but no matter what the problem is, I better look inside and find the solution to these problems. And I better self-love, self-help, self-actualize, which all have one thing in common, self. I better look inside because this is where the magic happens, baby. That's our culture. Instead of saying, no, 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 no. There's a lot of problems right here and there's not a lot of solutions and I better get a solution from somewhere else, right? And I love, I don't know if you caught it this morning, I loved the music this morning because that music emphasized over and over and over again, not great is my faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness, right? Just as I am, I come broken to be mended. I'm the one that's wounded and needs to be healed. I'm the one that's desperate and needs to be rescued. I'm, I'm the one that's transgressed. I need your forgiveness. I need your healing. I loved Matt and the choir. I even loved what Matt said leading up to those songs. Lord, I need you. Think about that phrase. That's, that, that phrase is the antithesis of Revelation 13. Lord, I need you. Those are four words, but those are four powerful words. I sat there as, as they sang, and I, I just had some moments of worship. I even began to just pray a little bit while, while the choir was singing and say, God, that is true. I need you to be the husband that I'm supposed to be, to be the father that I'm supposed to be, to be the son and the sibling and the pastor and the friend and the citizen that I'm supposed to be. I feel overwhelmed by the responsibility and the pressure of those obligations. I feel like I mess it up all of the time. God, I need your help. That is a gospel-centered biblical approach to say God gets to be at the center, not me. And while there's this text of people who are wanting to plunder the glory of God, may that never be true of us. May it never be that there's a congregation of people individually or collectively that put ourselves in the middle and say it's about us. Because here's the deal, and track with me, I'm almost done. Everything in the world belongs to a class. You know that? Rover's a dog. Oak is a tree. You are a human. Jelly is a condiment. A better one than peanut butter, I might add. You know, what, you know what God is? God's God. God is not best in class. God doesn't have a class. God is all by his lonesome. There's only one God. God is alone. God is otherly. God is unique. God is holy. God is set apart. Everything else is creation. He alone creates. Everything else had a beginning. He's the only one that's always been. Everything else is dependent. He alone is sufficient. And what that means is God gets the glory and God gets to be at the center. My happiness is not at the center. My own well-being is not at the center. My preferences are not at the center. My own little doctrine is not at the center. God gets to be at the center. You get that? Glory is not a bowl of mashed potatoes that gets passed around like Thanksgiving meal and everybody gets a little bit of it. Glory is something that belongs squarely with God and whether we eat or whether we drink or whatsoever we do, we do all to the glory of not Mark and not you to God, right? Yeah. 
That's what Romans said. Well, I, I love this moment in Romans and I really am done with this. You don't believe me, I know, but that's okay. <laughs> Where Paul said, brethren, by the patience of the consolation of our God, I would have you to be like-minded. You think about that. The Bible allows for a whole lot of diversity in a whole lot of areas, economics and status and gender and spiritual gifts. And God's not cookie cutter. But there's a moment where he says, I want cookie cutter right here. I want you like-minded right here. That ye may with one mouth and one mind, ye plural, that yens may with one mouth and one mind, what? Glorify God. I want everybody on the same page, marching to the beat of the same drum with one mouth and with one mind, cookie cutter right here, glorify God. And may we realize as we come to the end of Revelation chapter number 13, that yes, there will be a day where God will be somewhat robbed of his glory from this antichrist and this false prophet and all the attention and spotlight will be directed to them and away from God and away from the Lord Jesus. May we understand that that day could happen today and we don't want that to happen today. That could happen to a church, that could happen to a family, that could happen to an individual and that should not happen on our watch. That we should be the people that say, uh-uh, Jesus stays at the center. Jesus gets raised up on a pedestal. We increase and he decreases. Excuse me, we decrease, he increases. Reverse that, right? So this morning, let's, let's just end. Like, is that the real ending? That's the third time. Yeah, it is the real ending. Let's end by saying, praise Jesus. He's God and he came, became a man. Quite the downgrade lived a perfect life, died for our sins as our substitute, raises from the dead, ascends to heaven, is the king of glory and worthy of all worship and a name above every name. And may we say, whatever's happening here in Revelation 13, uh-uh, that won't be true. That idea of self-glory and self-promotion at the expense of God's glory, that's not going to happen in my life or in my church.